One surprise fact, and this is going to even surprise Pitt. At the end of 2012, early 2013, I won a raging bull for a value fund, for running a value fund. So, um, and uh, I'm still trying puzzled by why they ever called it a value fund because I've never tried to trap myself. I've never tried to put a fence around myself. I just like to look for good investments. And I loved what Pitt had to say. And particularly his view on commodities now, because um, I agree with him. I think we're going into a very good commodity market. This is even before the Ukraine crisis emerged. It was there, it was evident, it was in front of us. And I found that fascinating because um, I try to look for the story and you'll see I've got a few points here, but it points to what I think and I haven't quite articulated my arguments yet, but I think we're going into a decade, and I'm going with what Stafford said this morning as well, of very high business investment. I think it's going to be a decade of high productivity. If you listen to Stafford this morning as well, he mentioned that point of, um, he mentioned the metaverse, he mentioned all these issues that are taking place. But I think all of that, and all these themes that we're going to see um, are going to create um, you know, productivity growth opposed from the last decade that we saw, 2010 to, 20, uh, 2010 to 2020, which was um, social media. Social media did not improve productivity. Well, some might argue a little bit, but I think we're going into something very exciting, which I can talk about later. We can maybe uh, uh, tap on. But... Um, I, th I, I think there's a lot of excitement going as well, and I think this is embodied in what we are seeing now. So I don't in any way disagree with Pitt's views on, on commodities and that, but I think there's something above that that's going to create this. So just a few points also to give, um, you know, to give some um, context to where I am and what has um, shaped the way that I look investments. You know, I started the JSC in 1972. I spent 50 years on the JSC. When I joined in 1972, there wasn't an equity culture. Um, Buffett had only started his partnership in 1965. So, I mean, he, he was hardly known at that time as well. And no one thought about building long-term investments. There wasn't that kind of um, um, culture around at all and thing. You know, mainly our, our clients were the mining companies and they would buy mining shares from each other. There wasn't any real um, investment. You know, the, the, the institutions didn't really invest. Um, we had a few private clients as well. We dealt a lot with Belgium dentists, for those of you who can think that back. In other words, we dealt a lot of gold shares in Paris. We dealt a lot of gold shares in Brussels, in New York and London. We were a very big market. We were about one of the top 10 markets in the world, mainly because of the resources that we um, you know, that, that, that we developed as well. Um, but what was relevant about the 1970s, besides all of these things, is that it was a period of very high inflation. It was a period of exceptional high inflation that started in 1965 with, with um, President Johnson's Great Society. We had the Vietnam War. We had the oil crisis, the Yom Kippur War. After the Yom Kippur War in 1973, the, the uh, Arab-producing nations held the world to ransom and so on. And what was interesting about that is that with this high inflation, we suddenly saw interest rates going to these very high levels um, in, in the world. 
And for the first time, we saw that interest rates or bonds, there was a risk attached to it. Up to then, I think most of the insurance companies and uh, large institutions just used to buy bonds and that as a safe haven. But what this did do is that sparked or initiated or instigated what we know today as this equity culture. When I wanted to learn about investments, there was no CFA, there were no courses at Varsity. You could do a legal BA, an accounting BA, a marketing BA. Uh, and I, 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 in fact, um, I joined up at the New York Institute of Finance and I did an investment analysis course there as well. And my textbook was Graham Dodd, <laughs> Benjamin Graham Dodd. So from the very early days, uh, we were introduced, you know, if you wanted to do security analysis, you were introduced to uh, Benjamin, uh, Benjamin Graham. But why do I bring this up? Is that because during the 70s, I saw, because of inflation, I saw people's um, savings absolutely destroyed. They didn't know it at the time. Uh, it wasn't immediately apparent because it's just like this... It chips away at your savings, just little by little by little by little. And suddenly you wake up one day and you realize, hold on, I'm not as wealthy or I haven't got as, money as, as much money as I thought. One could apply the same to the rand as well. If you go back 10 years or even then when the rand was 7 against the dollar, suddenly we're 15 and a half. Slowly your purchasing power um, has gone. And what I realized at that stage is that it's not good enough to preserve capital. It wasn't good enough just to, to be there and look after your capital in a notional way. You actually had to build wealth. You had to build capital. You had to build your wealth as a buffer against issues like inflation or maybe in the modern context, the depreciation of the rand plus inflation to save you for, uh, for old age. Just remember, we are living longer. You know, uh, a couple of years ago, I'm 74, I would have been gone, you know. I would have been probably, you know, certainly not standing up here and giving speeches and that. That's how much, you know, older we are. We, we're living much older. But what that means is that we now have to save <laughs> a lot more. Remember, your working life is, what, 40 to 50 years? Retirement, 20 years. <laughs> so you've got to save in those 40 to 50 years enough for 20 years of retirement. That's a hell of an ask. And you don't realize it until you manage money like us, the strain that it does put. So I've been looking ever since the 70s and 80s to find some kind of formula. What, what do we do? How do we, um, you know, how do we find a way to get around this? I know that Buffett, um, uh, sorry, my... my my formula is really to buy equities as well. And I'm just referring to Buffett's share, you know, his, uh, shareholders letter, which came out on the weekend. He says, invest in businesses with both durable economic advantage uh, and a first-class CEO. Uh, pick businesses based upon long-term business performance. Become a business picker, not a, uh, not a stock picker. And later on, he acknowledges what has always been my mantra. He says, since what I love, he said, his favored investment uh, asset allocation is 100% equities. He says he can't do it now. He can only do 80% because he can't find the right areas to give. So I have been in search of the right kind of formula. I found it to a large extent. I went down to Somerset West a few years ago as well, and some, a couple of people came to me, very humble, 
apologetic, didn't want, to, didn't want to disturb me, and they asked me to look at their portfolios. And these were doctors, lawyers, not driving fancy cars. I looked at their portfolios, and they were the original backers of Anton Rupert. They were worth literally hundreds of millions of rands. And what, what intrigued me is that they continued to hold us. They had the Remgros, they had the British American Tobaccos, they had all these companies, they had all these companies still. And they had been under pressure, of course. As soon as a financial planner or advisor finds that you got that wealth, they come with all their solutions and that. And these people had just continued to hold, pushed them away, and so on. In a similar vein, I was very fortunate to have worked for a man called Gus Lipschitz. He was a very deep thinker. He was a sharp mind as well. And he would read. He was an MCOM, but he would sit down in his own way, twist his hair, twirl his hair. He was bald, but he would twirl his hair, and he would read balance sheets, cover to cover. And in the late 1980s, Gus came and he would say, you know, things are going to change in South Africa. He says, we're going to get a new middle class that are going to need TVs, they're going to need motor, motor cars, houses, and so on. And what Gus did is that he said he identified a couple of shares, funny enough, Lewis, um, companies like that, that would benefit cash build. He read cash build balance sheet and he saw Pat Goldrick had bought 500,000 shares for himself. He says, if he's going to invest in the company, it's good enough for me. And what he did is that he just said, that's all he's going to do, five shares and just continue to buy them. And Gus died a few years ago, but he died an enormously comfortable man. He, was, he did exceptionally well. And why I point that out is he didn't inherit money. This was on his savings or on his earnings. And that, and that made a deep impression for me from a theme point of view. And to this day, I still look for those themes. I still, in the same way that I mentioned as we opened up here, you start to look for the themes that will dominate, dictate the world economy in the next five to ten years. Of course, finding the companies is, um, is, is, is something else. But what differentiated, it's very easy to say I'm going to buy equities or something, or I'm going to buy these kind of businesses. But what differentiated the people from Stellenbosch that I met or at the, the, in Somerset West and Gus is that they were on the right bus. Now, there's a saying, there's a very well-known saying that says, and I've adapted it for South Africa, it says, if your destination is Cape Town and you get on the bus for Durban, no matter how long you stay on the bus to Durban, you're never going to get to Cape Town. So get off the bus from Durban and get onto the right bus. And that's very important because the one thing that I find in markets is that ego gets in the way of a lot of people and a lot of decisions. It's one disorder that brings down more people than anything else. Admitting, never admitting that you made a wrong decision. Pitt said it in the way, keep a note of what you do. It's the same thing. You made a wrong decision, correct it. Get out of it, get into the right, get into the right um, company. But how do you distinguish those? How do you find that? It's time and discipline. I don't think there's an easy way for investment. It's, it's something that you have to dedicate in a big way. You, have, you can't just say overnight, 
you know, I'm going to now become an investor as well. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of dedication. And you must dedicate the same amount of time to your financial health as you do to your spiritual or physical health and that. It does take time as well. You know, I, my wife knows I get up every morning at quarter to five. I listen to the news for half an hour, go run, go for a run, then shave, shower and that, get to my desk. But throughout the day, I watch the markets. I see what's going up, I see what's going down, and I try to find the stories around them. Why did it go up? Why did it go down? What are the stories that are dominating markets um, at, 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 at the present time? I think you get a lot from watching markets. You get a lot of, you get a lot of insights um, in, into companies. You know, I don't believe their CEOs who say, I don't watch my share price. They should, because it tells you what other people think of your company. And also, sometimes, unwittingly or wittingly, information does leak, and it allows you to keep track of, of, of what's happening. I think I also like to go through as many results as possible. And the reason I do that is that I think you learn more from company results than you do from economic reports. You know, I don't understand economics. I'm an accountant and that I do understand the cash book. But I'm saying when you read company reports, you learn a lot about the businesses. You learn a lot about the industries in, in, uh, in which they're... Um, you know, in, in which they're operating. Um, you know, what I like to do, the very first thing is, I don't go through the whole report, you can't. You know, Pitt said it in a nice way, I say it in a different way. Accounting is a fraud. It really is a fraud, and I say it as a chartered accountant, because you can't understand accounts anymore. They do not make sense. And the only way you can make sense of them is to actually go and read those reports yourself. So I follow a routine, I go into the segmental reports, what did they sell? How much did they sell? What did they sell? In other words, what products? How much did they sell? And, uh, and also, I like to say, where did they sell it to? You know, where is the... So you get, you build a picture up of, of a business. Very important to do so. And I know Pitt has a go at process, and I want to give you a, some kind of indication, because there are two kind of uh, results that I want to pick up. I looked at the process results. Now, I've been a big supporter of Tencent, and... Um, when you go through the process results, you say, hold on, trading profit, 115% comes from Tencent. 115%. So where's the other 15%? Well, a little bit comes out of classified, but if you look at their food delivery, fintech, e-tail, edtech, and all the other business, that takes away. So I ask myself the question, hold on, if Tencent is still growing even at 10%, how long is it going to take for all those other companies to make some impact on Tencent? You know, so all I'm trying to illustrate is that you start to get that kind of view because when you look at the industrial, I mean, the investor relations, you know, they'll focus on what they want to focus on. They'll put the big story out there of, of other things. But when you look at the numbers yourself, you get a much better picture of it. You know, you can see the same thing in Discovery's results. People for whom I have a great admiration, I'm not taking anything away, but when you look at the businesses in which they're investing heavy, heavy money that's coming from South Africa, you start to get a different picture. You know, you start to see a different picture emerge. So look at the segmental results, look at the cash book, look at how much money they're paying, paying etc., and do your research yourself. The other thing is that, that um, the other thing that, is that four minutes left? Yeah. Whew, I'm going fast. Okay. <laughs> 
The other thing is that look at management. Um, do not invest in any company where you've got even the slightest doubt about the people running the business. You know, it, it also takes time to learn about that. Uh, it takes time. What I always find is that, uh, that people get infatuated by, um, by management. You know, management can come up and they could present a wonderful story. But buying a company is like a long-term affair. You know, it's like finding a partner, finding a friend. It takes time for you to understand. You don't meet someone and overnight uh, propose or find a friend and say, you know, tomorrow we're going to be best friends. It takes a long time. You've got to give yourself that time to understand management. Remember when Steve Jobs died? Who was Tim Cook? We never thought that Tim Cook would be anything. We were already writing off Apple. Have a look at what he's done. When we came to the end of the Balmer Gates era in Microsoft, Sachin Adela came, look what he's done. And I'm saying the same thing. You must apply those same kind of views on company management. Give yourself time to judge the management. Don't reach, uh, don't reach quick conclusions. Um, also, when you look at management, very important, look at their lifestyles. You know, if there's stories about them throwing away money at casinos or lavish, uh, or you know, spending lavishly on themselves or families or business, believe me, if they can be like that with their own money, they're going to be like that with shareholders' money as well. So be very careful. Judge. Be careful about the people. Look at their lifestyles and understand who the, um, who who they are. Um, just the last point because I've got two minutes. Um, just one, the, the other thing is that I don't buy dreams. I know that sometimes I'm connected to the tech sector, but I don't like to buy businesses that are dreamy companies. Um, I like to buy businesses that are actually selling something, getting money for what they sell, and also looking very carefully at cash flow. The most important thing is to see how much cash they generate and what they reinvest for company. For me, it's one of the most important points. What are they reinvesting in their investable or productive assets? How much of that is going back to make sure that they can sustain those kind of earnings on a longer basis? Um, so it's very important you know, not to get carried away with the dream and what I call the PowerPoint, you know, the PowerPoint presentation. It's very easy to put fancy slides up. It's very easy to seduce investors. But I'm saying before you do that, just make sure you look at the cash book. And I'll end on the story because I remember I learned that from a fellow by the name of Alistair Cahoon, who won't know. Alistair was a colorful character at the best. That's the best description I can make of Alistair. Theo Hennings here, who is in the audience, will remember, um, will remember Alistair. But I remember we were listing a company in the 80s. It was a yarn mill in the Eastern Cape. And uh, when we tried to invite Alistair to come look there, he said, show me the balance sheet. He said, you know, let me see the numbers. Before, you know, let me see the numbers before I see the machinery. And I think that's always stuck with me. Look at the numbers before you look at the machinery. <laughs>